You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Hey, wonderful to be with you this morning. My name's uh, Andy Judd. Uh, if you haven't met you, um, I'm married to Steph Judd, wonderful Steph, who's on the staff team here at City on a Hill. And I spend my week teaching up the road at a Bible college called Ridley College. And I'm really grateful uh, to be here, a particular hello to those of you joining us uh, through the miracles of cameras from um, Ivers Street, uh, CoHQ, or online. It's wonderful we can all gather together in this way. I'm grateful particularly to Guy Mason, our senior pastor, for inviting me to open the Word of God this morning. Uh, he's actually uh, he texted me, he's mid-flight, um, coming back from um, some studies that he's doing overseas to equip him to better serve us. So I'm grateful for him and for the time that he's putting into that. And he sends his greetings and will soon be back with us in Melbourne. Now, today, we are opening uh, the next passage in the book of 1 Peter, continuing our series in 1 Peter. And this section is all about the issue of suffering due to persecution because of Jesus. Uh, it's brought to the forefront. And this makes sense because since the beginning, being a Christian has involved opposition. Jesus suffered. Jesus was opposed. And so his followers have followed in his footsteps ever since. I was reminded this week of the story of Perpetua and Felicity, Two of the great figures from the early church, Perpetua and Felicity, two young Christian women born in Africa in the second century after Jesus. Felicity was a slave and she was pregnant at the time. Perpetua is a noble woman who'd just given birth to a young infant, about 20 years old. She's married, has a young infant son. And both of these women become Christians. We're not sure exactly how someone shares the gospel with them and they convert from paganism to Christianity. Around about this time, something that happens in their culture, in their community. Likely uh, the governor of the area made a new rule that you weren't allowed to convert from Christianity, from paganism to Christianity anymore. And so it's illegal suddenly for them to have been uh, new Christians. 
So existing Christians are fine, but new converts like Perpetua and Felicity are in trouble. They're in breach of the law. So they've recently converted. They haven't yet been baptized. And Perpetua's father pleads with her to renounce Jesus. It's not too late. You haven't been baptized. This can all just be a phase. We can move on. Motivated by his love for his daughter, seeing that bad things are ahead for her. He tries to attack her and her faith. He pressures her strongly as her father to renounce the name of Jesus. But she refuses and she says this to him. Father, do you see, for example, this vessel lying here, this jug or whatever it is? And he said, yes, I see it. And I said to him, can it be called by any other name than what it is? In other words, can you call this jug anything other than a jug? And he says, no. To which she says, neither can I call myself anything other than a Christian. That was her way of saying, no. No. I'm a Christian and I'm not going to renounce Jesus. Enraged, her father leaves, him, leaves her for, for a few days. And while he's away, she gets baptized. And that really seals her fate. Perpetua and Felicity and three other new Christians are arrested, thrown in prison. And the reason we know all this is Perpetua actually keeps a diary of what it was like to be in prison for the Lord in the second century. One of the earliest, most remarkable Christian texts of the early church. In it, she describes her suffering, her great fear. She, a good girl from a good family, she'd never been in trouble with the law before. Suddenly, she's in jail. She speaks of the extreme heat, how they're packed in to jail. She speaks of how the guards abuse and are cruel to the women. And she speaks of the agonizing pain of being forced to suddenly stop breastfeeding her infant. Remember, she's got a very young child. Suddenly she can no longer see her baby and uh, she experiences incredible pain as a result, physical and emotional. While they're in prison, some members of the church actually bribe the guards so that Perpetua can see her infant and feed him. Perpetua's brother, who's the only other member of her family who is a Christian, encourages her to seek the Lord, to seek a vision, to find out what will happen to them. And so she does and she asks God and, and God reveals to her in a vision that she will suffer. We have begun to realize, she says, there is no hope any longer in the world. And so hearing that and finding out that she's about to be tried in front of the judge, her father pleads with her another time, have pity on me as your dad, at least. Renounce the name of Jesus, abandon your faith, return to your family religion of paganism. She is torn by her father's tears, but again, she cannot. And so the, the women are brought before the governor they're ordered to deny their faith and ordered to take part in a ceremony, a sacrifice of worship to the emperor. They refuse. Her dad has another go trying to convince her. And the judge addresses her for one last time. Spare your father's gray hairs, the judge says. Spare the infancy of the boy. Make a sacrifice for the emperor. But again, Perpetua answers, I am a Christian. 
So these new Christians are sentenced to death in the arena at Carthage. They will be torn apart by wild animals as part of the celebrations for the emperor's birthday. Now, pregnant women were not allowed to be executed while they were pregnant. And so Felicity is anxious that she will miss out, that the others will be executed without her. Fortunately, from her point of view, just as they're about to go into the arena, she gives birth to her child and so she can join her fellow Christians in their martyrdom. Now, at this point, um, her diary ends, obviously. She leaves prison and is brought into the amphitheater. But someone else, another eyewitness, takes over the account and describes what happens. This is the 7th of March, the year 2000, no, year 203. 7th of March, 203. The Christian uh, women and men are led into the amphitheater. The crowd yells for them to be whipped by the gladiators who oblige. Then wild animals are sent on them and they are severely injured. Perpetua, it's noted, takes a moment to pin her hair because if she's going to be martyred, she's going to die with good hair. I didn't make that up. That's in there. They give each other a kiss of peace before the soldiers, uh, seeing that the animals have injured them beyond uh, living, the soldiers come and finish them off with a sword. Perpetua's soldier actually was an inexperienced young soldier, makes a meal of the job, and so Perpetua has to take the sword to her own neck. It's an awful story and an incredibly moving story uh, for so many reasons. Um, their suffering was incredible even in their own day enough so that people wrote down about what they saw. It's no surprise that a church was built in their honour at Carthage to remember them, to remember their bravery and their joy and their hope in the face of terrible suffering. And I find this story really challenging, really challenging. I've never suffered anything like this for the name of Jesus. And to be honest, I hope I won't have to ever. I thank God for the freedom that we have. So reading this story and sharing this with you reminds me to pray for those Christians in other parts of the world right now who are facing very serious persecution for being Christians. I have friends, maybe you do too, whose families have disowned them because of Jesus. I, I have met and talked with people who have had to flee their country because converting to Christianity is against the law. And when one part of the body suffers, the whole body of Christ suffers. And so it's right that we will later on pray for them and with them. But as well as praying, we can actually learn from their example. And from our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 4. It'd be great to have our Bibles out and ready because I don't want to imply that what we experience day to day is anything like this level of opposition. But if the gospel can give perpetua and felicity peace and joy and confidence and hope in the face of violent persecution, then it can certainly give us courage and joy in the face of the opposition that we do face and the shame that may be thrown our way. And it can ensure that we know how to respond as Christians when it comes. So two parts today. Part one, shamed for Jesus. If you get a Bible, that would be great. Uh, in thinking about the, uh, the challenges of being a Christian, Peter in chapter 4 
brings his first word of counsel, which is all about our attitude as Christians to suffering. It's all about him setting our expectations. Have a look in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. All right, to stand for Jesus means to stand against something. To stand for Jesus means to stand against the forces of this world. And so we're, you're kidding ourselves if we don't think there's going to be some pushback. Perhaps it's the culture that you're in, your friends or, or, or your work environment or your university, college, or your team or the office or whatever it is. Maybe that culture is so confused that they see drunkenness and gossip and sexual immorality and offensive joking as normal. And so when you don't take part in that, that means you'll never fit in. Some of you, I know, work in environments where you're expected to support an ideology which is against the truth that Jesus has taught, that clashes with what you believe. And even staying silent can bring a cost to your career, to your standing, to how you're respected, and I know some of you today are in incredibly difficult family situations, whether it's your parents or your spouse or your kids, who knows, constantly attacking you for your faith, making you feel small because of your faith, trying to get you to give up Jesus. Don't be surprised. If you stand for Jesus, you stand against what is not true. But as well as not being surprised, Peter wants us to think of this pushback actually in a positive light. When trials come, they're not to break us, they're to test our faith. Back in chapter 1, Peter compared the trials that we suffer to the process of refining gold. don't know if you did this at school, but I remember going visiting uh, the gold fields at school and panning for gold, separating the tiny little gold specks in the pan from the, from the, the, the rubbish and, and the, the sand and getting the gold out. But that's not ready to make jewelry, right? So about 2,000 years before Jesus, the Egyptians perfected the way of making refined gold. Right? Gold is, a, is an incredibly um, precious metal. It's, um, I don't know this except from Encyclopedia Britannica, but it's actually heavy, but it also doesn't oxidize. I don't know what that means, but it means that when you heat it up, apparently, the other stuff burns off, but the gold stays pure. And so you can melt down the gold, the Egyptians discovered, and refine it, right? get rid of all the rubbish, and be left with pure molten gold. And Peter describes the process of Christians under pressure like refining gold. Now, I don't know what it's like, what it feels like for gold to be heated up to 1,064 degrees Celsius. Apparently, that's the melting point. But it doesn't sound pleasant. And yet, that's the process that he describes here. The opposition, the intense heat distinguishes between the genuine and the fake, the gold and the rubbish. It distinguishes between genuine faith and faith that is not genuine. It brings out and refines the faith that has bet everything on Jesus, everything. The faith that believes his teaching, that believes him when he says he is who he says he is, and we are who he says we are, and the world is the way he says it is. 
It brings out, refines the true faith, the genuine faith that trusts in his death and resurrection alone for our forgiveness of sins, nothing else. Who looks for our identity in the approval of the Father because of Jesus. And who looks with joy to the resurrection of the dead. Just as Jesus was raised, so we will be raised. And we look forward to the justice of that day when God puts the world back the right way it is as we are raised from the dead to share in his glory. That's genuine faith. And that is what comes out at the other end of the fiery trial. Standing strong in the face of opposition is hard, but Jesus is worth it. So Peter tells us this is part of the process. Expect it. Expect this to happen. You see, you can imagine for a moment what it would be like if there was no opposition. If everyone was Christian, there was no cost for being a Christian. No difference between how Christians live and non-Christians live. In that kind of environment, real faith and fake faith can just sit side by side. You can sit on the fence. You're never forced to choose. And it's impossible to tell the difference between the real and the fake. We know this because this happened. right? The early uh, Puritans traveled from England, traveling away from religious persecution to start a whole new kind of Christian utopia where everyone would be Christians and go to church. They got on their boats and they arrived and they started a a, a culture, a, a community built on solid Christian values. Now, people who've traveled halfway across the world to avoid persecution, you can be pretty sure that they're serious about their faith. But you know what happened in the second and the third generation? Suddenly, it's good for business to be a Christian. Your social standing depends on it. Everyone's at church. Real faith and fake faith can sit side by side. And that's why Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers of the uh, last 500 years, when he was born into the second and third generation, he had to preach to people to try to wake them up. Because when there's no opposition, you don't have to choose. Are you a given your life for Jesus Christian or are you a everyone else is doing it kind of Christian? Now, when Perpetua and Felicity are about to be led into the amphitheater to be torn apart by wild animals and they say, I'm a Christian before the governor, you can be sure that they mean it. There's no ambiguity there. No one can question whether they're genuine or accuse them for being baptized for like social reasons. Opposition to Jesus, friction with the world forces us to decide where we stand. And counterintuitively, it actually can be a source of joy as well. Rejoice, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we experience pushback for being a Christian, our lives are connected in a new way with Jesus' life. That was the pattern of his life. First suffering, then glory. That's how it works with Jesus. First suffering, then glory. There's the cross, then there's the resurrection. So when we suffer persecution, we're experiencing the first half of that equation. We only know about Perpetua and Felicity's final moments, what they were feeling and thinking from the eyewitnesses. But there's some things to note about them. They walked in with joy, it said, as if entering heaven. Perpetua sang. She sang a song. 
They gave thanks because they had received sufferings, some of the sufferings as Jesus had, some of the same sufferings. Now, they're not crazy. They don't like death. But see, they saw their sufferings in its context as the first part of that Jesus thing. First suffering, then glory. And so they were blessed, joyful to be experiencing the same thing as Jesus because first suffering, then glory. If we're suffering for Jesus, it's a reminder of what comes next. To suffer for the sake of Jesus is to be reminded that just as his suffering is ours, so his glory is ours as well. Resurrected life, freedom from pain, the presence and love and approval of God the Father. And seeing that next to the jeers of the crowd and the disapproval of the crowd, the approval of God and the disapproval of the crowd, the jeers and the insults and nothing. If you are insulted, verse 14, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Sounds weird. How does that work? Well, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Uh, Here we get in this verse an example of the type of suffering that Peter is thinking of. It's not just physical punishment, although that may have been uh, happening. It's not just death. That may have been happening. But he's thinking of insults. Now, it's more than just nasty words. To be insulted is to be shamed, isn't it? To be shamed, to, to lose your reputation, to lose face, to be rejected by your family and your friends, by other people. If you want to know what a public shaming looks like in the ancient world, just look at Twitter. That sort of re-kind of revived that ancient ritual of public shaming. It's fundamentally about the loss of social standing, isn't it? the loss of respect, and a challenge to your identity. This is who you are, and you are nothing. Which is why the answer to this shame, to these insults, is a new identity, one which can't be taken away by suffering. In fact, one which is confirmed by suffering. It's unity with Jesus. Don't don't worry if you're kicked outside. Don't worry if you're shamed Don't worry if you have no standing or identity or worth in the eyes of others. That's exactly where you'll find Jesus hanging out. He was mocked and rejected. If you are too, then you're hanging with him. And if we are (coughs) united, pardon me, with Christ in his suffering, then we are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. This is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where it talks about the Messiah being raised up, Jesus the Messiah, a root from the stump of Jesse, a spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of God, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So really, Peter is saying you are participating in the Messiah's job, Christ Jesus' job by suffering here. And so when Jesus' suffering is laid on you, this is a sign that so is all the other stuff, the glory, the presence, the approval, the wisdom of God. Remember back to to Matthew chapter 3. If you remember the story when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the Lord God says to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. 
And when we suffer, the same spirit is putting that same approval on you. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. That's what God thinks about you. So who cares what insults come your way? If the gospel can empower Perpetua and Felicity to respond to violence with faith, with hope, with love, it can empower us to respond in the same way to insults and opposition whenever they come. Because it's really important that in the face of opposition, we, we stay who we are. We don't become other people. We don't react to insults by trying to think of a better comeback. We don't respond to insults by not being able to think of a better comeback, but then going away and stewing on it, thinking about how much we, we, we just hate those people with bitterness and anger. It's important we don't respond to insults by forgetting who it is who gives us approval in the first place, who matters, God. But that's hard. You ever find yourself doing this? Not rising, but being lowered to their level when someone treats you unfairly? Is there a temptation for you to start thinking of those who cause you pain with bitterness and malice, not, not seeing them as, as people to be loved, but seeing them as, well, enemies to be defeated. Could it be perhaps that in those moments you are being so fixed on their behavior that you've forgotten who you are? Could it be that you're listening to their voice and not the voice of your heavenly father? who says, this is my daughter, this is my son. Which brings us to the second part of this passage. Whatever happens, you do you. People often do uh, give this advice, which out of context is terrible advice. Uh, you do you. Right? Begs the question though, who are you really? So I want to redeem this saying by asking the question, who are you really? Throughout the letter, Peter has been reminding us of the need to be who we really are, to live as Christians no matter what. You may remember some of these uh, verses from chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or chapter 3, wives in the same way, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Or chapter 3, verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Do you see the pattern here? Bad stuff comes your way. You respond with good works. You do you. Peter continues this thought in that passage today. It would be tempting under attack to respond in kind, wouldn't it? To, to lower ourselves to their level, to throw back that snarky insult in return, or to reach for whatever power we have socially, politically, whatever it is, to make our enemies pay. After all, they've insulted not just me, but Jesus. Someone should do something about that. But that's not the Christian way. That's not what we're meant to do, according to Peter. Let none of you, verse 15, suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Whatever it is you're thinking of doing in return to them, stop. Don't do it. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you're a Christian, then you are his. He is your Lord. He is the one who you live to please. He is the one whose opinion matters. You leave it to him to judge the world. You leave it to him to do something about what they're saying about him and get on with your job, which is to do good. No matter what, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who your opponents are. Let's not forget that they are people, people who are dangerously estranged from God. And Peter wants what for them? What does he keep on wanting for them? He wants them to be saved. He wants them to be won over by their wives. He wants them to see the good works and realize that they've been an idiot and change their direction. That's what God, that's what Peter wants. If the world turns against us, how do we respond? For many, I think our instinct is to fight back. But that would be such a double tragedy, wouldn't it? Not just to suffer for Jesus, but then ultimately to lose sight of who we are. How disappointing is it, frankly, when we read in the papers or online about Christians doing evil? How discouraging is it? How bad is it for the name of Jesus? Let that not be the case. And you know that the media will pick up on anything. Right? There's no headlines kind of, kind of scandal, pastor caught feeding the poor. You know, pastor gently reading the Bible and encouraging his flock. You don't see that in the paper. But I guarantee you will see it. If Christians behave badly, the office, the office gossip machine We'll see it. The other parents at school will talk about it. Now, good behavior, on the contrary, probably won't always be noticed in the same way. And it won't mean that you escape opposition. Let's, let's be clear. This is not a way of getting out of suffering. But we must stay true to who we are. We must keep our identity as the people of God. We must do the right thing because it's the right thing and it's who we are, no matter what they're saying about us. And because ultimately we're accountable not to the media, not to other parents, not to the office gossip machine. We're accountable to God. So whatever they say about you, however unfair, here's my encouragement, friends. Just do what God thinks is right. Because, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Right? We know that judgment is coming and it's coming for us as well as anyone. Justice day is coming. And we need to live in light of that reality and and act in light of that reality and make decisions about who we impress in light of that reality. Knowing that God will judge the world, that God will bring every deed and every thoughtless word and every nasty thought to light. Let us look inside differently. Let us look at our behavior in a different way. Let us examine ourselves, no matter how badly I'm treated, no matter how badly people speak about me. I can bring Christ into this somehow. And it also helps us to see our opponents in a new light. 
And it's very hard to walk away when people are saying nasty things about ourselves and about Jesus. I acknowledge that. It's very hard to let untruths stay out there in the air. Do you know what Perpetua said when she walked into the amphitheater? She looked at the governor and she said, you judge me, but God will judge you. Now, they're brave words for someone about to be torn apart by wild animals. But she's right. And that gave her joy and confidence to allow anything to happen. How should Christians respond under pressure? Let those who suffer, verse 19, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because Christians, as Christians, we live in light of the future, don't we? We don't live in light of what's happening now. We live in light of God's judgment, not the judgment of our friends. And the most important thing for us in this is to be who we are. You do you, and by you, I mean a child of God. Live as a child of God. I've heard many stories, even just this week, of Christians doing this. A friend of mine is a single mum. She was doing it really tough recently. And so a group of Christians who she really didn't know that well pulled their resources to make sure that she had meals, like a, thousands of meals. That's an exaggeration, just a bit. But not much. Making sure that she had food and she was looked after. I heard recently about a retiree who heard about a family in the floods in Queensland who'd been left stranded and far away from the kids' school. And so they just... This retiree just let this family live in his house until they could find somewhere to live permanently. He didn't know them. Just connected through the local church. I heard of a university student, basically on the poverty line, <laughs> struggling to buy groceries for herself, yet would three times a week cook Tex-Mex for anyone who wanted to come and have a meal, for the lost and for the lonely. And I know some of you have done things like this this week and you've done it for Jesus. And I think all of us should be looking for opportunities to keep doing good no matter what happens, no matter what is said, because we can never stop being who we are. Right now, though, as promised, I would like to pray for uh, our brothers and sisters all around the world who are facing opposition. And after that, we're going to share the Lord's Supper with each other and in fellowship and solidarity with them. So would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we do ask for your presence and your protection over all who bear your name in difficult places, in hostile situations. We pray particularly for those hotspots in Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, and parts of India for the peace of the whole world, for the welfare of your holy church, we pray with them, Lord, have mercy. For safety in every city and community and freedom to worship without fear, we pray with them, Lord, have mercy. From opposition, insult and threat, we pray together with our brothers and sisters all over the world, good Lord, deliver us. From violence and danger and the destructive power of hate, good Lord, deliver us. 
from new laws preventing people from converting to Christ in places like Haryana in India, we pray with the church there, good Lord, deliver us. From the strict penalties for sharing religious content on social media in China, we pray together with the church there, good Lord, deliver us. For the Presbyterian church in Sudan, whose buildings have been taken away by the government, Lord, hear our prayer. For girls like Agnes, who were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Nigeria, who for two years have been under pressure to renounce Christ, Lord, hear our prayer. Grant, we ask, Father, your people a solid faith, a deep wisdom and profound assurance of your love. Despite challenges in government policy, may Christians in all places continue to speak courageously about Christ. Would you, Lord, fill all believers with compassion, clothe them with humility, and move them to care for all people, even those who oppose them? And would you, Father, continue to gather us with all your saints into your eternal kingdom? Lord, hear our prayers through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.